You're listening to The Professor and the Hack. Thanks for tuning in again. We're up to episode 28. How do we do that? We're at the end of the year, PVO. Almost uh, my age. In, re, almost your age, I'm PVO. Go, unfortunately. Is, of course, The Professor and I'm the Hack. I'm Hugh Remington. Now, we've got that end of the year feeling. Parliament is up for the year. Uh, who won the year? It's fairly obvious, isn't it? Scott Morrison with well, yeah. Bells and Whistles. I, I did hear... Albo didn't quite say this, but he was implying that this has been a bad year for the government going through all the various problems that they have had, which they have had a number of problems. This was in his caucus meeting, his final caucus meeting of the year. But while he was saying all of that, I think he must have deliberately avoided that exact phrase, it's been a bad year for the government, because the whole time he was talking, even though I was agreeing with him about some of those elements of problems, I was just thinking... Hasn't been that bad a year. No. They did win. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You, every, every politician wants a bad year where you win an election exactly. that no one expects you to win. But it is extraordinary because last year was a bad year for them. They had all those leadership ructions. They had a leadership change. It looked horrific. Uh, this year they haven't got everything through that they want to get through. Mm. Uh, but who cares? They won the election. Who cares? They won the election. So, so there it is. Now, we've talked a fair bit about the coalition and um, – and its issues this year, hmm. Labor now has to start to deal with, it's done its sort of six month after the election phase. It has to start looking forward and, and going to the next election. And we see Albo heading off to the tree of knowledge, the birthplace of the Labor movement back in the uh, late 19th century uh, to try to get back in touch with his tree roots and also... Um, <laughs> but isn't he also doing a whole coal mining thing? So absolutely. Visit the tree of knowledge before then going and doing everything you can to deal with the problems of not having had enough interest in coal. Put that one together for me. Uh, but in fact, that goes absolutely to the heart of the dilemma for the Labor Party, doesn't it? Because at some stage between now and the next election, they're going to have to come up with uh, an emissions and greenhouse gas uh, policy. And what we're seeing at this stage is that Albo is not of a mind to jettison coal mining uh, to please those in the inner cities. Would that be fair? I think that would be fair. And his argument, I have to say, does have logic to it. His point, apart from the electoral logic, which is obvious, coal mining communities are pretty big in parts of Queensland in particular, uh, and obviously, therefore, they're important to the electoral politics of Labor winning or losing, given how few seats they won at the last election in Queensland writ large. But there's also a policy logic to it. His argument is, yes, coal is dirty, but our coal is less dirty than the kind of coal that would continue to be used by economies around the world, such as India, for example, were they not to import it from us. In other words, they're not going to suddenly switch to renewables. They're going to get dirtier coal from other parts of the world where the mining practices aren't as good, where uh, the refinement process of the coal itself isn't as good. And and the base coal is not as good. Exactly. So his argument is, look, in a, in a lesser of evils context, we might as well export it and get the economic value of that because actually, in a worse for worse comparison, our coal is better environmentally than the coal that they will get, for example, from Indonesia. Now, that's true. I'm not sure that's going to pacify people, but it is true. It shows, it's a classic straddling the barbed wire fence, isn't it? Because you can't be, uh, you know, Shorten found this when he was trying to uh, protect uh, the by-election, which one was it, the Batman by-election mm. uh, in inner-city Melbourne, uh, and then get caught up in what his position was on Adani. You can't please the inner-city uh, and please 
regional Queensland. But then the question is, what damage does upsetting one or the other do? My argument, again, this is electorally we're talking here, not necessarily environmentally, but electorally, I think Labor is better off displeasing the inner city to try to recapture those regional communities. And here's why. The regional communities turn to the coalition if they don't vote for Labor. So working class coal miners will vote coalition rather than Labor if Labor tries to appeal to the inner cities. Inner city voters aren't turning to the Liberals, they're going to turn to the Greens. And the Greens are never going to support a Liberal government, they're only ever going to support as a minority, if it were that, a Labor government. So Labor should be less scared, in my view at least, about losing votes to the Greens in inner city seats. Electorally speaking, it should be more concerned about losing coal mining votes in regional Queensland to the coalition because lose them and you lose government. So when you see Joel Fitzgibbon, the Labor Party frontbencher who uh, had the biggest swings against him of any Labor member up in the Hunter Valley One coal Nation mining was region. The threat there. Yeah, so but you saw a photograph of him in recent days with Matt Canavan, the, the resources minister uh, at a coal mining conference all smiling and grinning together like their best mates. That's good politics. I think so. I think it has to be for Labor. I mean, this has always been the dilemma for Labor as it's become the party of the inner city and the the party of the, I don't like this phrase, but the so-called doctor's wives and all the rest of it. Now, that that party is caught between the traditional working class roots and those more enlightened, if you like, intellectual inner city offerings. Where does it go? Well, you know, if it loses its working class roots, it loses government. It can't hold government without holding those seats. It just can't. Kevin Rudd knew that uh, in 2007, other factors at play. You do get in eventually when another side's been in for over 10 years. But but, but Rudd got this huge uplift of being able to argue that climate change was the greatest moral challenge of our time. Different different political environment, though, at the but, time, But he could, he could walk both sides of that street, and it was working Only for, for him so at that long. time. <laughs> and in the end, that, that more than anything cost him well, – that ended up costing him his job in, in many respects, that and his personality. But the, the, the problem for Labor is if they don't play to the coal mining communities, they don't win enough seats in regional areas, particularly in Queensland, to form government. The trick then becomes how do you actually do it without completely blowing yourself up in those inner city seats such that you have not just the odd green that picks up an inner city Labor electorate, but you have too many of them uh, that it makes it unworkable and then they drag you uh, to your left flank if that's what an And you become again, you know, the, you know, the green Labor government. Exactly, all of that. And we've seen the Tasmanian Labor Party and the problems it's had over the years We saw that, that with Gillard, obviously. We did too. We certainly did. So look, I, I think it's about trying to come up with what is – a notionally credible argument for why it's going back after those coal mining communities. Rudd, of course, had it because of work choices more. That's the other thing we shouldn't forget. The coalition, and he was a Queenslander. Well, he was a helped. Queenslander. Jim Chalmers is a Queenslander. I, I bet he'll be reminding people about that in the years to come. But the, the issue for the for the Labor Party is that if they, if they don't try to do something about that, they don't win enough seats to form government. But how do you do it and maintain some credibility? The work choices thing is really important, Hugh, because – the government, the coalition, I mean, having essentially given up on hardcore IR reform, what that's done is that's made it harder for Labor to retain working class voters. Working class voters were happy to come char- charging on board when they looked at IR policies of the coalition that were eroding workers' rights. Now that the coalition have given up that ideological platform post-Howard, what happens to those working class voters? Well, they look at Labor's environmental record without the fear of their jobs from a coalition government. They haven't completely given up with things like, uh, you know, weekend penalty rates, the, the sort of 
it's marginal in comparison though, to what it was. You'd think that would peeve enough people, though. But, we, but you know, we've seen the election since then and it obviously mm. didn't peeve enough. But I, I, I want to take you back to what you said there about the electoral logic of what uh, Albanese is doing. And there will be people, and doubtless these are those in the inner city seats, who say, hang the electoral logic. The purpose of life is not to be some sort of calculating monster who's figuring out your own self-interest. You should actually take a stand on things that really matter and, uh, you know, getting part of some sort of global agreement and, and being at the forefront of that is actually what matters for the planet. It's not cutting much ice, is it? No, but I think that Labor can do both. I think Labor can take the internationalism approach to climate change action without giving up the exporting of coal as a logical, less bad option than if we don't and if those underdeveloped nations get it from dirtier sources. I think you can do both. I I think they can reject the Morrison refusal to be involved in these international agreements going forward uh, and be part of international compacts, but nonetheless argue for exceptionalism when it comes to Australian coal exports. This is A version of that has been done before in the climate change. I I, I do wonder about... You know, people, broadly speaking, now have an idea of what the coalition proposition is. Uh, They have an idea what the green proposition is. They have an idea what the One Nation proposition is. I think they struggle with what exactly is the Labour proposition uh, as it tries to marry uh, the sort of the instincts of inner city electorates and outer suburban electorate, so they've got to go after mm. as well, but also those up in Queensland. You know, in the end, you try to be all too many things to too many people. Well, I struggle to understand what Labor really truly stands for these days because those defences of the working class voter are less significant when you're not up against the kind of hardcore IR platform that was there in the 80s, 90s and, and Howard's work choices by the coalition. But you also see policies like environmental policies which do put upward pressure on energy prices, at least in the short to medium term, uh, and being part of a carbon trading system which can do the same in in its own ways, that makes it difficult for Labor to retain working-class voters. And then you throw in the nature of the modern economy where fewer people are members of trade unions and more working-class voters tend to be quite entrepreneurial in style, particularly tradies and the like. That's a difficult one for an old-fashioned party of the working class to know what to do with. Absolutely. You can't hate management uh, or you can't challenge management as a working class party and hope to retain working class voters when, you know, every second plumber considers themselves a manager because they've got a couple of apprentices and they're a small business. Absolutely. Um, I think Paul Keating said something about that, that we've Mm. we've raised you up and uh, and, and now you've forgotten who got you there. um, And sorry sorry to interrupt again, but what I find equally fascinating about this is amongst a lot of traditional liberal voters who are the so-called don't like the phrase doctor's wives phenomena, but it's gender neutral. These voters continue to tend to vote liberal on self-interest around things like tax cuts, company tax cuts, you name it, even though they prefer the more environmentally post-materialist voting uh, issues like, you know, climate change and so on. But it doesn't shift their votes. And even if it does shift some of their votes, we're talking safe liberal seats in affluent it areas. It is as so safe liberal matter. seats is the issue because mm. we did see that people, where there was the strongest vote against self-interest, uh, against things like the franking uh, credits element of labour, labour um, it was happening in, in rock-solid Liberal Party seats. So it just didn't matter it unless didn't you were Tony difference. Abbott. Yeah, unless you were Tony Abbott. So news poll has come out. Uh, we do love a good poll. We don't give a, a toss particularly, but there is some interesting stuff, a couple of things caught your eye, a couple of things caught my eye. One of the things I thought was just in the detail, 
that we've had now bushfires in our news for weeks, and it's quite terrifying what people have been seeing. And yet, during that period, the Green vote, to the degree which it can be picked up by news poll and there's margins of error and all those other caveats, but the Green vote hasn't lifted. If anything, it's gone down. And I think that is perhaps a bit of a cautionary tale for those who think that even though there's a lot of talk and noise about climate change, that preference towards the Green voters doesn't seem to be reflected in news poll. What do you make of that? Yeah, I... I, I... I want to take a bit of a wait and see on on that side of it because I think that kind of thing can take time to permeate rather than right in the midst of the of the crisis, whether it's drought or fires. The thing that really caught my eye, I, I'm after the last election, I'm particularly this far out. I'm I'm less interested in the the polling figures around party votes, particularly two party votes. It means nothing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and they you know they're they're a snapshot in time, and even then with an error margin that could see the result reversed. What I find interesting about this latest news poll is some of the figures around trustworthiness, arrogance, likability, all of this vis-a-vis the two leaders. You look at Scott Morrison, 58% of voters think he's arrogant. Only 40% think Albo is arrogant. Now compare that to the September poll that they did right, uh, you know, and we're talking September 2018. So ahead of the election year, Shorten was seen by 54% of people as arrogant. And back then, Morrison, he'd just taken over as leader, was only seen by 51% as arrogant. So it's gone from 51 to 58% for Scott Morrison. Labor having changed leaders, Shorten was the more arrogant of the pairing against Morrison, according to most voters, probably because they thought he was arrogant that he was going to win, as he probably was. But Albo doesn't have that arrogance flavour yet. But at the same time as that, when it comes to someone like Scott Morrison, his likability is still at 56%, exactly the same as Albo. Now, I think you can't, as Prime Minister, stay both arrogant and likeable in voters' minds for too long. I'm not going to predict which way it's going to go, but it will go one way or the other over time for Scott Morrison. He will either how, continue how f- to be seen as arrogant and his likability will decrease, or he will be that everyday likeable bloke that I think a lot of Aussies think he is at the moment in which case the arrogance will have to subside a little. So Morrison is also seen as stronger and more decisive. Will people tolerate arrogance in a leader if they feel that they're strong and decisive? What's Historically, where does that To sit? a point, I think, but it catches up with a leader when times become tougher or when they're perceived to not be doing as good a job as they perhaps had at, at different points in time. So you can cop an arrogant leader who you think is doing a great job because you say, well, he's got something to be arrogant about. He's doing a good job. But the minute that things get tougher, whether it's unemployment, downturn in the economy, these are things that are there at the moment, or other factors, that arrogance becomes, I think for a lot of voters, misplaced. And therefore, the likability factor goes down because of that arrogance. So to some extent, all politicians are captured by the circumstances of the times. They shape it to some extent, not as much as they all believe they do. But we're going to see this go one way or the other for Scott Morrison. It might not cost him the next election because of where Labor's at and where he's at, but it'll eventually cost him an oh, election. I think Morrison would be delighted, wouldn't he? If he wins another election, he's, oh, in- he's in the pantheon. He's succeeded beyond the wildest dreams of his party, let alone of himself, um, or perhaps he would have believed in it. So um, I don't think he much cares after that, does he? Well, maybe, but they all tend to get married to the job. You know, I mean, John Howard had ample opportunities to retire rather than have his seat taken away from him at an election that he lost across the general board. So we'll see with Scott Morrison. I mean, he, people forget he's only in his early 50s. He's, he's, a, he's a young prime minister. And he's also a new 
prime minister. You know, he hasn't gone anywhere near serving a full term yet, even though I'd be very surprised if he didn't. If he does, he becomes the first prime minister to serve a full term since John Howard from 04 to 07. Extraordinary. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. G'day, Sandra Sully here. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. If you're looking for more to listen to, head over to Short Black with me next. I talk to all kinds of amazing women who are making a difference. Good women, great chat. Welcome back. You're listening to The Professor and The Hack with uh, PVO, The Professor, Peter Van Onselen and me, Hugh Remington. Now, uh, Parliament's up for the year. Gee, um, shattering! What what a shattering blow that that we have that we have to wait all the way till February before going well, back to Canberra yeah, for Parliament. You know, well, they've got to go and rest up, don't they? <laughs> like, they the, do uh, work so hard. The politicians. Look, I, I do feel a, uh, this isn't going to win me any friends amongst listeners, but I do feel a little bit sorry for politicians. They're, they're they're accused of not working quite often by a lot of people when they're not in Parliament. Whereas, in some ways, when they get back to their electorate, that's when the real work starts. And oh. I mean, I know at one level people would say cry me a river, but imagine being a politician. You know, even when you get a bit of free time, you're going off to some fundraiser or some local community event that you have to attend as the local member. Uh, And that's before you even start thinking about actually doing something productive as a member of parliament. I totally agree, actually. I think think the, the best job in politics is to care nothing for your own ambition. Uh, to be happy to be a backbencher somewhere and be an extremely lazy one. Because <laughs> if you've got that one nailed, uh, the pay's okay, you get the limousine turning up at your door whenever you call them up and you never amount to anything, but it's a pretty easy gig. But if you actually are there to do some work and and make a difference, which most of them generally, oddly, think they are there to make a difference, um, they work pretty hard for it. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's not, it's not the easiest gig going around. No, it's not. And, you know, I mean, they are, you know, certainly by community standards, well-paid and all the rest of it. But that time away from home as right. well, every sitting week, plus all the travel for committees. I mean, I, I, I couldn't think of anything worse, frankly, than being a politician. There you are. Well, that uh, answers the questions in many of your minds out there, dear listener land, that uh, PVO is not going to put his hand up. Um, <laughs> not a So how did it all work out then? We, we have this deal, no deal with Lambie. The Medivac thing has gone through. Um do we know anything more about oh, what let, that is? Let me have my rant about this. I am Dude. so sick and tired of semantics from the politicians, refusing to answer questions. A lot of people, particularly on social media, get angry at journalists saying, oh, they won't answer questions. Well, then make them answer them. That's easy if you've got a 15-minute interview on TV live where you can just continue to ask the same question over and over again and then their non-answers become embarrassing for them. Much, much harder at press conferences where you're lucky to get one question, you're extremely lucky to get a follow-up, and then they work their way around the room and and the media doesn't hunt as a collective pack, nor should it, so therefore you don't necessarily get backed up by your colleagues who've got their own issues that they're wanting to ask questions about. So you can't really hold them to account when they don't answer the questions. On this issue around whether a deal was or wasn't done with Jackie Lambie, they don't directly answer it. Uh, They use semantics about there was no secret deal but clearly something was discussed that is being held back because of national security reasons. They're saying it's not a deal because our policy hasn't changed. But what does that mean? You know, their, their, their policy at the moment is not to go after a New Zealand settlement uh, arrangement with refugees because they say that it's a backdoor entry. That's what Peter Dutton has been saying. However, technically, I hear from coalition people I talk to that they consider New Zealand part of their framework of their current policy script if they can find a way to close the back door. And one of the ways they can maybe do that is that legislation they weren't able to get through the parliament previously, which would preclude anyone who's 
been resettled in New Zealand from ever coming to Australia. There was laws which were rejected uh, to that effect, which they believe now could well get passed. Maybe that's the deal. Uh, but it has, has to be done in the in the Australian Parliament because there was a suggestion in the initial stages of this New Zealand agreement that perhaps New Zealand might take them in and pass a law within the New Zealand legislation, which would put a little mm. asterisk against their citizenship or the permanent residency, which prevents them from coming across. And, of course, the Kiwis quite reasonably say we don't have two classes of citizenship in us in New Zealand. It would have to be Australia doing it. has to be Australia doing it. But their, their view is, having got Lambie on board for repealing Medivac, that they could probably get her on board for, for those new laws and that would therefore not constitute a change of policy, but it would constitute some form of an understanding between her and the government that is what we're seen referred to from the last sitting week in Parliament. Either way, though, it's some sort of deal, but just answer the bloody question. You know, when when asked about it, just be honest. So you mentioned the uh, impression of arrogance in the Prime Minister. Do you see that in the public mind, they're sufficiently attuned to this to pick up on the fact that he doesn't answer questions? Not yet, but in time. I think it's part of that bubbling effect. At the moment, you know, did... Brian Houston get invited to the White House by you only to be rejected by Donald Trump's administration. That's gossip. I've already answered the question. He even said that. After being asked four times and not answering it, he even then said, I've answered the question. Prime Minister, no, you haven't. That's the point. That's the Brian Houston example. We've had it on countless other examples. I've asked him about why he walked out of the same-sex marriage vote rather than take a stand one way or the other, uh, having been part of the cabinet that demanded a plebiscite wouldn't answer the question. Uh, he's been asked, as, as has others in his team, about this secret deal or no deal with Jackie Lambie. They don't actually directly answer the question. This is a real problem in modern politics. It was one of the factors that cost Bill Short in the election, I have to say. Of course. He wouldn't answer that question from Jonathan Lee at that press conference. Now, that was... This was about the cost. What would be the cost of his, of his policies on climate, climate change, change policy? Yeah. Exactly. Now, that played a major role, I think, in in the unravelling of Bill Shorten, amongst other things. But it should be an issue that pollies don't answer the question whether they're good at not answering it or bad at not answering it. That cost Bill Shorten because he was bad at not answering the Mm. question. Scott Morrison so far is relatively good at getting around not answering the question. That's not a reason to say, let's all applaud the Prime Minister for being good at not answering questions. No, let's all hold him to account for it. And one of the things that frustrates me, I think that... It is more newsworthy when a politician, particularly a prime minister, won't answer a question. I think that's the newsworthy, that we stay on it. We keep asking. We don't let him or her get away with it. Unfortunately, though, there is a view that, ah, the dogs bark, the caravan moves on, what's the next issue of the day? I think that's a mistake by the collective media. You you think there is a collective media? Well, I think there should be on stuff like that. We live in a democracy. You know, we're supposed to have accountability structures for leaders. The fourth estate is an important pillar in that accountability process, if not the most important pillar in the wake of where parliament has descended to. So if they don't answer questions just because they managed to ride out the time of the interview or go to somebody else in the press conference and then the dogs bark and the caravan moves on the next day because we have a release of unemployment figures or we have the latest GDP forecasts, that's not a reason to move on. We should all keep saying, hang on, we've got an accumulation of non-answers that are building up. This is now a, a more newsworthy topic than it was yesterday or the day before. Even when they're trivial questions like the Houston one? Or, I think so. Or, because in a sense, if you won't answer 
to stuff which is trivial. What else, you know? I, I went, in my days of romping around Canberra and going to all these news conferences that you described, there was a bloke called Matt Franklin who worked for News Limited. Uh, well, he's now actually then was, Albo's Now works uh, for Albo, which is quite unusual to jump from News Limited to Albo's office, although he's also got James Jeffrey, the, uh, uh, the former sketch writer, has come from, uh, from the Murdoch uh, campers in there as mm. his speechwriter. But uh, Franklin had a technique where... A politician would um, avoid answering a journo's question and then with a sigh turn to someone else where he thought he could get a safe question um, coming in. And Franklin used to say, why won't you answer his question? It was always a beauty. I always <laughs> felt like walking across the, the thing and giving him a big kiss. Uh, but, and then you see the politician just sort of deflate and sag as they go, oh, Christ, there's no easy way out of this one. So um, sometimes perhaps journos can just say, answer his question uh, before you come to mine. Um a couple of things about that. You mentioned uh, Jonathan Lee and the famous What Will It Cost? And I noticed that Jay Weatherall, uh, who, of course, co-wrote the um, review into the uh, Labour Party loss at the election, uh, has taken um, a crack at uh, the Rudd greatest moral challenge of our time, uh, saying that that kind of moralizing language, language um, and I'm going to quote here, prevents you from doing the really hard work of asking about the costs and benefits of action. So in a sense, Weatherall there has gone to the point that because Shorten wasn't ready for the question and had cast it in moral terms to act on mm. climate change, that essentially he hadn't done the hard work of being able to explain and frame up uh, the costs. Um, but that's looking a bit backwards. I also noticed, and I'm interested in, to get your view on this, that there's we, we, read, we read today in The Australian that there's a trimmed-down um, ERC, the uh, the, yeah, the, the razor gang, the the guys who look at they've taken the razor to the razor gang. And yeah, so now and it's really interesting because the people now who are on this thing and these are the people who fundamentally will explain what the razor gang is. Well, yeah, the expenditure review committee is basically a subcommittee of cabinet, and it's the finance subcommittee of cabinet. So any decision that gets made. There's the policy side of that decision being made between the cabinet and the relevant minister and their department and the prime minister's office. But then the Razor Gang, the ERC, they have to tick off on any funding that's structured around any decision making. So in other words, nothing gets through them to become policy unless it's approved via the funding mechanisms attached to it. So it's the most important, in many respects, the most important element of cabinet or subcommittee within cabinet and it obviously has to have the finance minister and the treasurer and the prime minister and the deputy prime minister but it used to have a much wider field than that now it's been carved right back i think greg hunt is on there this is what i wanted to get you on because everyone else is all of those people you can see a deputy prime minister national party leader uh, he would get his seat on that the finance minister matthias corman of course because that's his fundamental mm -hmm. work Frydenberg, of course the prime minister of course and then on the Razor Gang is the health minister, Greg Hunt. Um, do you think that anyone should read anything into that? Obviously, health's a huge spending part of the uh, economy, but that, but that he's in there looking to carve on health? No. Um, cynically, I'd like to say yes. I mean, look, there's, there's two elements to it. There's, there's the only half serious element, which is that Greg Hunt, you know, he's a former management consultant. He, he loves a good flow chart. You, know, you always want someone like that in there to take notes and and bivvy everything up for you at the end of the ERC. But the real reason he's there, and it used to be Christian Porter when he was social services, I think it might have even been Scott Morrison when he was social services before he took over the treasurership, you always have to have one big spending minister in there. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be a big spender that's then going to see cuts, but generally on ERC there's always one big spending minister. It might be defence, education, social security or health. It's usually one of them. 
uh, and it's Greg Hunt's turn, I suppose. It used to be Christian Porter, as I say, when he was social services. Once he lost that portfolio and took over leader of the house and he's got two portfolios, IR as well as AG, no more logic in him being there. There was logic previously, not just because of the portfolio, but also because he was a state treasurer before he went into federal politics. Greg Hunt is economically literate. Uh, he is a former management consultant. And most importantly, it would, wouldn't matter what the portfolio was, but you want to have a big spending portfolio minister in there. Uh, that's, that's always been the, tradi- the tradition. And so what do you see their role as being? Um, obviously, it's the same role it always has been, and that is to keep a lid on spending. But uh, the political imperative is this budget surplus and to sustain mm. that into the future. Uh, how, how good do you think this group of people will be? On the face of it, you'd say they would be pretty good at keeping that lid and finding intelligent ways to keep a lid on spending so they can keep that surplus without, as you've said previously, putting a, a handbrake on the economy. Yeah, to me, look, to me, this is only one half of what you want from good governance when it comes to economic management. Yes, you want to have a powerful, strong ERC that can stand up to spending ministers in particular uh, and stand up uh, to you know the, the profligacy that can otherwise develop in government and, and particularly recurrent expenditure, which can blow out you know wages and all the things that are not productivity building. So yes, that's one important half of good governance around the economy. The other half, which is not an ERC responsibility, it's just a, 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 for government to have good reforming credentials, is your microeconomic reform. I heard the PM in one of his last media conferences from the final sitting week talking about how we've embraced microeconomic reform. Let's not kid ourselves. That's rubbish. You know, they've done a little bit of it here and there. Every government does, but it's rats and mice stuff. So the ERC can't help with that side of things. So sure, they can, if you like, trim the edges of the budget and ensure that spending doesn't blow out in areas where it shouldn't. That's the value of ERC. But all you're doing eventually, if you don't embrace proper microeconomic reform, which is hard politically, which goes beyond an ERC, eventually you're putting lipstick on a pig because the ERC can't change that. And that's the challenge for the coming year is to find reforms that are actually going to make a difference to the economy. It takes a lot of time, though, before that gets exposed. I think we're getting towards the end point for this government with a lack of microeconomic reform, but we're at the early point of being able to criticise Morrison for it uh, because, of course, he hasn't been in the top job for too long. And he did want reform when he was treasurer. I mean, people forget that. When he was treasurer, he wanted to reform the GST and the tax structures based on consumption taxes. It was Malcolm Turnbull that got frightened that it might affect his polling numbers and overruled him. And now he's the man in the uh, in the big seat, PVO. So good to talk to you as always. Talk soon. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. Hey, when you've got a moment, check out some of our 10 Speaks podcasts. Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Hammer at Home with me, Baz Dubois. I'm Matt Burke, and you've been listening to 10 Speaks Rugby Podcast. I am the hack, I'm Hugh Rimminson, and with me is the Professor Peter Van Onselen. You're looking splendidly relaxed, Peter. Have you missed me? Next time you're looking for a podcast, head to your favourite podcast player and search 10 Speaks. And give us a five-star rate and review while you're there.